Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June, we're running our annual Radiothon, when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. We're here every Saturday, 12 noon, to defend and promote public education. And you won't hear us anywhere else because we're not really very popular anywhere else. And that's why it's important that next week you are prepared to ring 3CR and give us some money because we've got to raise $6,000 to stay on the air defending public education. And 3CR needs all the money it can get because there's nothing else like it in the rest of Australia, alternative media. But um, this afternoon, we've got an interesting uh, press release about the new Minister for Education. Uh, Everybody has just heaved a sigh of relief that Mr Morrison and company have been kicked to the back benches for a while. But... um, The Labor Party have, in fact, been given a poison chalice when it comes to the economy or the economic situation. And public education leads at least, at least $14 billion, probably 19 would be nearer the mark, to keep going at any kind of a reasonable um, procedure in this country at the moment. And Jason Clear needs to find that in the cabinet room for us. Now he walks, the, he, can, he can talk the talk. We've had some very interesting reports in the uh, paper about Mr. Jason Clear and his activities, like going back to his old primary school and giving a big hug to his first teacher and saying how good public teachers are. He's singing from the same sheet, same hymn sheet as the Australian Education Union. Not the dogs, he's not against state aid for private schools, but um, he's at least pro-public schools, which is more than we can say for the Morrison gang. So uh, he's talking the talk, but the real question is, can he walk the walk? Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jean. Jason Clare's first act as education minister was to visit his inspirational teacher at his old school in Western Sydney, He describes himself as a proud product of the public education system, saying, you won't hear me say a bad word about teachers. My own story shows the importance of education. I'm the first person in my family to finish high school in Western Sydney in the 1960s. Not a lot of kids from working class backgrounds went on to finish high school or go to uni. Certainly, my mum and dad never dreamed that it would be possible for them, he said. All well and good. 
Jason Clare is echoing the election material distributed by the public teachers unions. And it is certainly a relief from the freedom of choice and private schools are in our DNA rhetoric of the coalition. The Labor Party have woken up to the anger and power of the public school vote ignored by Morrison and co. But can Jason Clare walk the walk? Dogs ask, has Jason Clare got the intestinal fortitude to confront the private school interest and demand repayment of JobKeeper and resource funding overpayments? Has Jason Clare got the intestinal fortitude to demand proper accountability for public money spent by private school corporations and religious administrations? Has Jason Clare got the intestinal fortitude to demand information on endowments and assets held by individual private schools and religious administrations? Above all, has Jason Clare got the push and pull in cabinet to demand the 15 plus billions needed to renew our public education systems and make them internationally competitive? Trevor Cobold from Save Our Schools also has his view on what should be Jason Clare's priorities, and Kim will tell us a bit about that. Thanks, Ollie. Yeah. A public education agenda for the new education minister. Save Our Schools today presented a public education agenda for the new Minister for Education, Jason Clare. SOS National Convener Trevor Cobold said the Labor silence on crucial issues in public education must end. The new minister must step up for the public schools. Labor went to the election without an agenda for public education. It cannot be a do-nothing government on public education. There are major issues and challenges facing public education that the new minister must take action on. The foremost priority is to ensure that public schools are fully funded at 100% of their schooling resource standard within five years. At present, public schools in all states except the ACT are funded at less than 90% of their SRS and will remain at less than 91% until at least 2029 and 2032 in the case of Queensland. In contrast, private schools in all states except the Northern Territory are funded at above 100% of their SRS. The underfunding of public schools amounts to about $7 billion a year. This situation cons constitutes a crisis in public education which must be resolved. It is harming the learning of disadvantaged students who are two to four years behind their advantaged peers. Over 80% of these students are in public schools and 98% of all disadvantaged schools are public schools. Last December, the Labor Education Shadow Minister, Tanya Plibersek, said that the, inequality, the inequity at the heart of our funding system absolutely has to change and that every student should get 100% of the fair funding level. The new minister must expedite full funding of public schools. The first step is to increase the Commonwealth role in funding public education. The arbitrary limit placed on Commonwealth funding of public schools by the previous government of only 20% of their SRS must be lifted. The Commonwealth has a key role to play in ensuring national equity in education. A second step is to renegotiate the Commonwealth state bilateral funding agreements to ensure that public schools are funded at 100% of their SRS within five years. The states must also increase their share of the SRS of public schools. Renegotiation of the agreements must include stopping the states defrauding public schools by including expenditures not included in the measure of the SRS as part of their contribution to the SRS of public schools. This skullduggery is defrauding public schools of about $2 billion a year. Mr. Cobold said, 
called on the Prime Minister to support the inclusion of specific equity objectives in the National School Reform Agreement, which is being reviewed by the Productivity Commission. Equity is only vaguely defined in the current agreement. It can be interpreted in a myriad of ways to avoid accountability. A clear national statement is needed to guide education policy and funding and to monitor progress towards achieving equity in school outcomes. We propose the following definition. All students should receive an adequate education and school outcomes for different social groups such as low SES, Indigenous and remote area students should be similar to high SES students. This definition is consistent with the approach adopted by the original Gonski report on school funding. The minister should also commission a review of the funding loadings for disadvantaged students in schools. Research studies show that the loadings are far too low to make a significant difference to the achievement of these students in schools. They need to be five times larger than the basic loadings to lift the results of disadvantaged students to average levels, let alone get the level of high SES students. There are also many other pressing issues that the minister must engage with. These include reducing the teacher shortage, decreasing teacher workload, and reversing the casualization of teaching. These issues are contributing to attrition from the teaching workforce. The Commonwealth can provide leadership and incentive on these matters. And New South Wales and Victoria are already demanding extra funding. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Kim. That was a very interesting media release from uh, Save Our Schools, Trevor Kerbal. He's always on the money with his figures. Those was a, that was a very interesting figure. 80% of disadvantaged children are in our state or public schools and 98% of disadvantaged schools are the public schools and they should be getting the funding uh, that they that is required uh, to get disadvantaged children even to a certain level. But um, it's been a running sore on the social fabric of our community uh, for how many years? Well, the dogs would say for 50 years. The big problem is that the private schools have been funded and uh, now they are being overfunded. Perhaps the time has come to just take them over. After all, we're paying for them. But um, we'll have a bit of a break. And then Sorrel is going to tell us how the New South Wales and Victorian governments are reacting to the new appointment. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to scream out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. 
We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope, and Sol is going to tell us how New South Wales and Victoria have reacted to the new government and uh, their need for funds for public education. But before she does, we'd like to remind you, please ring 3CR and donate to 3CR and specifically to the Dogs Program. We have to raise $6,000 to keep our show on on 3CR, and we've got to keep 3CR on the Southways. But um, over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. So, yes, I do have an article by Adia Shola Ore writing for The Guardian, who is going to tell us about how education ministers say they will demand an increase in federal investment to reach 100% of the Gonski funding benchmark. The new federal education minister, Jason Clare, has said that one of his top priorities will be revisiting the needs-based Gonski School funding reforms. A fresh battle over the underfunding of public schools is brewing, with Victoria and New South Wales vowing to push the new Albanese government to lift its contributions to close an investment shortfall. The new federal education minister, Jason Clare, said boosting the results of Australian school students against international benchmarks and revisiting the needs-based Gonski reforms that aimed to end inequities in the distribution of public money will be among his top priorities. The Labor-led Victorian and Liberal-led New South Wales have joined forces to demand the new federal government close the 5% investment gap to tackle underfunding in education. New South Wales Education Minister Sarah Mitchell said the coalition would ensure its continued to oversee commitment to public school funding. I will be seeking a commitment from the federal government that they will lift their funding contribution to New South Wales public schools by 5%, she told Guardian Australia. Last month, Victoria's Education Minister, James Molino, said he would engage with the new federal government to pursue the 5% gap. On Monday, he said it was an unacceptable inequity that government schools only received 95% of their SRS funding, the needs-based funding benchmark created in the Godsky reforms. I've always said that I would prosecute this matter regardless of who is Prime Minister, and that's exactly what I'll do when the National School Reform Agreement negotiations commence this November, he told Guardian Australia. The current state-federal four-year schools funding agreement is due to expire at the end of next year. Under the agreement, public schools receive 20% of the SRS benchmark from the federal government and 75% from the states, creating a gap of 5%. 
Prior to the election, Labor's former education spokesperson, Tanya Plibersek, said an Albanese government would increase funding for state schools by ensuring they were on a pathway to full funding, or 100% of the SRS. But the National Teachers Union criticised the pledge for a lacking detail about time frame. The Victorian Teachers Union urged both the state government and Commonwealth to ensure public schools reached at least 100% of their SRS as soon as possible. At the moment, our kids are missing out, and the longer they wait for the funding that they're entitled to, the longer they miss out on the programs, the supports that they need to get the highest quality education, the union president, Meredith Peace, said. Peace said the union would urge the Andrews government to continue advocating for the Commonwealth to lift its contribution by 5% and would campaign on the issue in the lead up to the November state election. Our view is that they should continue, regardless of who's in government federally, to push for that, she said. In mid-2019, Victoria became the last state to sign up to the Morrison government's Gonski 2.0 education reform deal after a stoush with the federal government that saw it threatened to withhold its share of school funding. Peace said the union also supported the abolishing of the 20% federal funding cap in the new schools agreement and the removal of a loophole that allowed state and territory governments to claim costs of up to 4% on measures like building depreciation and transport as part of their school funding contributions. These items were not originally deemed part of the Gonski SRS benchmark. Trevor Cobalt, an economist and conveyor of public schools advocacy group, Save Our Schools, agreed that states needed to lift their game and not continue to claim such expenditures as part of their contributions. Cobalt said estimates by Save Our Schools showed closing the 5% gap would cost about $2.5 billion a year. A spokesperson for Claire did not respond to questions. Uh, back over to you, Jean. Well, there you are. At least the uh, state governments or a couple of them are prepared to go into to fight for public schools. I think it's becoming obvious that in the last election, although they didn't make education an issue, the public school vote did matter, particularly uh, in Victoria and New South Wales. So um, we'll have a bit of break and then... Jeff has got some very interesting material from overseas for us today. But before you go, or we go, um, for a break, that is, uh, please think and look, have a look, even if it's on your computer, at your uh, internet banking and see if you can afford some money for 3CR to keep the dogs and all our other wonderful programs on the air for another year. We've got to raise 250000 and the dog share of that is 6000 And every little bit counts, not only for 3CR, but also for your taxation return. 3CR, keep community strong. Did you know that you can pledge your support to 3CR Radiothon now and pay up later? Call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 and tell us what you'd like to donate and then pay your donation later. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. Donate to this year's Radiothon. 
Call 94198377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. And remember, every donation is tax deductible. So donate now and get your tax deductible receipt before the 30th of June. 3CR, keep community strong. Well, we hope you're still listening to the Dogs Program. And some very interesting material came our way during the week. We hear a lot about the uh, terrible war in Ukraine. But Jeff is going to tell us just how important education becomes when a country is in conflict, as they are now in Ukraine. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. What a wonderful privilege it is to be here for the dogs fighting for public education with you. And we just encourage all of you to remember how hard it is to keep community radio on air and how much it costs and how we would really appreciate it if you would call 3CR during the week, uh, during office hours, and pledge, 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 please, to the dogs and keep us on air, keep us defending public education wherever we, we can. And without you, we couldn't do what we do. So we, we hope to keep you informed on public education. Look, this article, I don't normally go all around the world, but I thought given the times that education is under threat globally and some of the particular threats that are in operation around the world towards education and, and in, as education gets caught up in conflict, uh, I came across an article I thought you might like. And it's a bit about the Ukraine. And I know we've all been hearing about the Ukraine. This is a country that rates very highly in public education just previous to the war, um, around 13th, for for example, in the world in education standards at at tertiary level. So quite a high uh, value is placed on education in the Ukraine. And it's arguably a reason, one of the reasons they're able to have a cohesive society uh, when they're under threat right now. Not wanting to just talk about Ukraine, but this is an interesting article by Jeremy Marsden and Marika Tsalakis, senior researchers at the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack, an interagency coalition formed in 2010 to address the problem of targeted attacks on education during armed conflict. And we see this around the world. We see it in Afghanistan. We see it in many other places. This one is particularly about Ukraine, but mentions others. It's called Ukraine Points Up the Threat to Education During War. It says, conflict has taken a horrific toll on civilians in Ukraine over the past three months, with many families struggling to meet even their most basic needs, including education. Over 1,800 schools and universities have been damaged or destroyed since Russia's invasion on February 24th, according to Ukraine's education ministry. Now, just as an aside, uh, there are around 15,000 schools in the Ukraine, I've, I've found out, and about 2% of them, it's a little bit less than 300 of them, are private schools. So this is a public education stalwart. So we'll go back to the article. Russian forces have shelled and bombed numerous schools. Both sides have used schools as military bases or for storing weapons. In just one example, a Russian airstrike reportedly hit a school on May 8th in Luhansk on the front lines in eastern Ukraine, injuring or killing dozens of civilians who had sheltered there. Education is a fundamental for students during war. Beyond teaching, schools and universities can provide a safe space, give students routine and connect them to life-saving resources such as meals and mental health services. Fortunately, 3.7 million Ukrainian children have been able to access online and distance learning since February, despite school closures. This has reduced gaps in instruction and perhaps more critically maintained a sense of normalcy. 
Yes, the war's long-term impact on the quality of an access to education remains worrisome. Repairing schools will require significant time and resources, and many students and teachers will experience stress and trauma that makes learning and teaching difficult. That is, if they return to class at all. Children in conflict and crisis-affected areas are twice as likely to be out of school as those in other places. Unfortunately, Ukraine is not alone. Education is under attack around the globe, and armed violence against students, teachers, and education facilities is on the rise. In fact, an average of six attacks on education occurred each day in 2020 and 2021, according to a new report from the Global Coalition to Protect Education from Attack. In all, we identified more than 5,000 cases of attacks or military use of schools during that two-year period. These attacks harmed, injured or killed over 9,000 students, teachers and academics. Nine countries each had more than 400 attacks or over 400 students or educated, educators harmed. Attacks increased in Mali, Myanmar and Colombia compared to the previous two years, but decreased in countries such as Syria and Yemen, where conflict de-escalated. Shelling and rifle fire damaged dozens of schools in Ukraine in 2020 and 2021 in the eastern Donbass, where conflict began half a decade before. In attacks on education, militaries and armed conflict groups bomb, burn and loot schools and universities and kill, rape, arbitrarily arrest and recruit students and educators. They use schools and universities for military purposes, such as for bases, barracks or training grounds. Explosive weapons, which were involved in one-fifth of all reported attacks on education globally and were used in many of the attacks in Ukraine, had particularly devastating effects. Airstrikes, shelling and other explosives are especially dangerous because they produce a large blast that can propel bomb fragments a great distance in all directions, often indiscriminately harming civilians and civilian buildings. There are several key steps that can be taken to protect education in Ukraine and elsewhere. First, warring parties need to stop attacking schools or using explosive weapons with wide area effects near schools or universities. Warring parties should also avoid occupying schools and universities and using them for military purposes. Occupation damages schools and universities and puts students and educators at risk, but it may also place the educational facilities in the crosshairs of enemy forces. Second, governments should endorse and implement the Safe Schools Declaration, an intergovernmental political commitment to protect students, teachers and schools and universities in armed conflict. Though Russia has not endorsed that declaration, Ukraine did in 2019. Ukraine has taken important steps to fulfil declaration commitments in the midst of conflict, such as instituting remote learning and collecting data on attacks on educational facilities. Third, the, the attackers need to be held to account. Governments, the United Nations and national and international organisations should support efforts to collect reliable evidence of attacks on schools and universities and their students and staff, and to put those responsible on trial in fair national or international courts, as well as to provide assistance to victims of attacks. Finally, funding must be raised and crucially directed towards rebuilding schools and universities destroyed in attacks as soon as it's safe. Education is chronically underfunded in humanitarian response. However, donors and governments can ensure funds are directed towards rebuilding classrooms, playgrounds and libraries, since distance learning, while exceptionally important, is no long-term substitute for quality in-person education. Destroyed and occupied schools and universities not only upend learning, they also jeopardise the post-conflict rebuilding of communities and economies. Education needs to be safeguarded in Ukraine and globally. And the dogs, of course, support any organisation or any people who support 
public education and to prevent and seek to defend it. It's in our name, defenders of government schools. So defend us. Pledge, pledge, pledge to the 3CR, pledge to the dogs and give us your support. Contact them during the week, during working hours, and you will be one of the dogs. You'll be one of the defenders of government schools. Keeping us on air keeps our voice alive and keeps you informed. Uh, Only people who focus on public education can give you the analysis that you deserve. Uh, So keep the dogs alive. Pledge to 3CR and the dogs during week. And back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Jeff. And uh, we'll have a bit of a break then uh, for the moment. But before we go, I'd like to remind you to have a look again at your bank balance and see how much you can give to 3CR, remembering, of course, that it affects your taxation return. Mantengamos la fuerza en la comunidad. Keep community strong. El Tardadero. Time to donate. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program and you're going to hear Jeff's uh, voice again because he's going to tell us about charter schools over there in America and what's going on there. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean, and thank you to our 3CR listeners who I know you're reaching for your telephones because I know that you want to pledge to the DOGS program on 3CR and help keep this on the air. Very few people are going to keep you informed about public education in Australia, and our kids are important. So you don't have to pay straight away. You can check your time and pay it off, all sorts of stuff, but please pledge to the DOGS program and keep us on air. Uh, Thank you very much. We, We look forward to your support. This little story is from our lovely Diana Ravitch over in the United States, and she, she maintains a wonderful blog on public education. This one's by a fellow called Jeff Bryant, who's a writing fellow and chief correspondent for Our Schools, which is a, a community organisation over there and supports public education. And he writes a story about a chaotic for-profit charter school. A charter school in America is the same as our private schools. And he writes... It didn't take long for Tasha Stiles to realise there was something very wrong with the school where she had just started teaching. First, there was her rushed orientation to the school. 
Toledo Preparatory Academy and early kindergarten through eighth grade charter school in Toledo, Ohio, operated by a for-profit chain called Axel Schools. She told our schools that her training during orientation in August 2020 consisted mostly of one workshop on basics, which included how to record attendance and enter grades. There was no school handbook or written guidelines about student discipline practices or instructional protocols. She said that the school had the appearance of a bare bones operation with very little decoration on the walls, empty classroom shelves with no books or instructional materials, heavily worn flooring and furniture, a rickety staircase that students and staff had to use daily and drafty classrooms with insufficient radiator heating, which on cold days kept students shivering even in their coats. Although Stiles had mostly taught social studies in her career, she told our schools that at Toledo Prep, she was told to teach math in grades five through eight. To help with lesson planning, she was given binders that contained Ohio math standards and some student math workbooks for which there was no teacher's edition for grade eight. She was told that students were expected to spend most of their instructional time on their Chromebooks, which the school supplied for in-school use only, and that students needed to be working on iReady, a digital software program for reading and mathematics, for at least 30 minutes per class period. The school didn't seem to have any other curriculum materials available. Administrative staff made promises of books and supplies that never arrived, or, if they came, were never dispersed to classrooms. Styles eventually resorted to using online learning tools like Khan Academy videos, which were free online, but school administrators disapproved of her using them. I had eighth graders who were reading at kindergarten level, she told our schools. She has also observed that there were students at Toledo Prep who struggled with English, but had no consistent help from specialised support staff. What few support staff there were came from outside agencies that provided services, such as counselling and mental health, mostly online. A lone special education teacher with responsibility for all exceptional students in the building was stretched very thin, Stiles said. The most reliable support staff in the building proved to be the tech support service from a company called Pansophic Learning, which happens to be the parent company of Excel Schools. So Excel Schools seems to be run by a, uh, a, a tech company. There were no school nurse. As COVID-19 raged across Ohio, Students generally didn't wear masks and the school did no contact tracing when students or staff got sick with the virus. One day, a student came to her with bloodied knuckles and Stiles went in search of the school's first aid kit, which turned out to be empty. The next day, Stiles came to school with band-aids that she'd purchased with her own money. Word about this got around and the students would come to her whenever they needed band-aids. The few student clubs and after-school activities the charter school offered were all cancelled after a student following a TikTok trend damaged a bathroom. Students were frequently suspended by the school's administrative staff, often for reasons that weren't clear to her. Rules were made up on the fly, she said. One week she counted and realised that 20 students had been suspended by the school staff. The school also enforced a rigid student ranking system, placing students in hierarchies based on their academic performance and discipline issues. Students at the top of the hierarchy were called eagles. Students in the next rank below were labelled doves. And students called larks included those who were struggling with learning or behavioural issues. Students in the bottom rank who were currently serving in-school suspensions were called turkeys until complaints by parents of students prompted the school to change the label to phoenix. What substituted for a rich academic program at the charter school was its near constant emphasis on test prep. Everything was focused on testing. Stiles said, I had never taught in a school where there was so much emphasis on testing. While I was there, there were three whole days devoted to nothing but mock testing.
Stiles quit after working only three months at the school, but the experience left her very frustrated and deeply concerned about the students. I can't pretend to not see what I saw there, she said. What Stiles didn't know when she took the job at Toledo Prep was that she had stepped into a school that emulates what has become a growing practice in the charter school industry. As an ongoing investigation by our schools has revealed, a substantial sector of charter schools, particularly those operated by for-profit operators like Axel Schools, are at the forefront of a wave of charter operations that follow an investor-driven business model borrowed from retail, healthcare and manufacturing sectors. In the charter school application of this business model, struggling schools are cycled through a series of private entities that in turn strip the schools of resources, run them at bare bones costs, and reap whatever assets that remain before handling, handing the schools off to the next private operator or shutting them down completely. In business and investment circles, the model is often defended as an important economic function to either revive struggling ent enterprises or reallocate resources that have been invested in failed enterprises to more productive endeavours. But in the case of Toledo Prep and the other charter schools practising this business model, although the business consequences might be fine for the charter operators and their investors, the children caught up in this investor-driven enterprise often have their education significantly disrupted or even permanently impaired, perhaps with a lifelong impact. Portfolios of failed charters. Styles, who earned her master's degree in education at the University of Kentucky, had been teaching since 1998, mostly at schools outside the United States. When she returned to the United States in 2020, she started looking for work in Ohio. She was attracted to charter schools because she wanted a challenge of teaching academically challenged students, and Ohio state law generally guides charters to locate in urban or challenged districts. Stiles, who identifies as white, had previously taught mostly in private Islamic schools. She practices the Islamic faith, faith and wears a hijab where students were most often more affluent and better supported than most of their peers. She believed she could have, have a bigger impact on students who were more disadvantaged. What Stiles only later came to learn is that Toledo Prep had a previous life with a different name, a different operator and a different authorising agency that had held its permit, allowing the school to operate, which in Ohio is called a sponsor. According to two leading business registration services, the building at the address now occupied by Toledo Prep Academy uh, had previously been occupied by Aurora Academy, a charter school sponsored by, according to state records, the Buckeye Community Hope Foundation, an Ohio nonprofit that has long sponsored a number of charter schools in the state. It's not clear who operated Aurora Academy before it became Toledo Prep, but according to the 2018 report by the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the school was acquired by Excel Schools around the same time Excel was buying up charter schools that had previously been operated by White Hat Management for a for-profit charter management organisation, often called a CMO. White Hat was one of a number of CMOs, according to a 2013 analysis by Policy Matters Ohio, that had a history of using a loophole in state charter schools to open new charter schools in the same locations where a previous charter had been closed due to poor academic results. A case study that was part of the analysis by PMO showed that White Hat opened a new charter school, Southside Academy in Youngston, within days of a school at the same street address being closed due to poor academic performance. Both BCHF and White Hat had earned high ratings in the Ohio Department of Education's 2015 evaluation of charter school sponsors and management firms, the Cleveland Plain Dealer reported. However, the article also noted that the Cleveland Transformation Alliance, an alliance of local businesses and organisations that advocate for high quality schools in Cleveland, wasn't convinced with those ratings, finding flaws 
with BCHF's school quality issues and the track record of its associated management companies, which included White Hat. Whether or not BCHF took its criticism to heart is difficult to assess, but it certainly made a turnabout in its performance evaluation of Aurora Academy. And although the exact date that Excel bought Aurora Academy is unclear, the State Registry of Charter Schools, which, called, which are called community schools in Ohio, in 2017, indicates Aurora Academy was being operated by Excel Schools with BCHF considering, continuing as the school sponsor. Toledo Prep is not the only Excel school that's been similarly rebranded to cover up its troubled past. And we have to say there's a pattern of this sort of rebranding. We've just noticed it again. We've seen it last week when, when the, with the Scientology School in Melbourne that was rebranded as a Montessori. And there's a way of these for-profit industries rebranding things in order to gain the maximum benefit from taxpayers' money. Even if they fail over and over and over again, no doubt the phoenixing that they refer to in their, to their children is something to do with the way that they operate their businesses. And these for-profit charter schools, community schools as they call them, we call them private schools, the smaller they are, the more frequently they, they seem to go out of business and re- resurrect. So this is why it's important for you to to pledge your support the 3CR and support the DOGS program to keep us on air, to keep, keep you informed about these threats to public education and the way that these leeches take the public money away from public schools in dodgy enterprises. We encourage you to pledge now, pledge a little, pledge a lot, pledge as much as you can for 3CR and for the DOGS program. And back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, uh, and we'll now go to a very interesting interview with Jason Clear. We're coming back to Australia and back to our new Minister for Education, who, remember, we started with talking the talk and asking whether he can walk the walk. Well, he did walk himself to Cabramatta, to his uh, first primary school, to his primary public school. In New South Wales, state schools are called public schools. They're very proud of being public. Uh, being for the common good. And Jason Clare uh, is obviously very proud of his schools and he had a very happy, happy childhood there because he could remember and went back to talk to his first teacher. Now, Sky News did a very interesting interview with him. Sky News, of course, is our our competition. We are not great um, admirers of Sky News, but we thought that you might like to hear this interview. And here it is. Jason Clare, congratulations, the new Education Minister. I know previously when you've been asked about your whether you've got leadership ambitions, you said this was your dream job, and now you've got it. You've got it. Well, it's a dream come true. Uh, I'm the first person in my family to go to uni. I'm the first person in the family to finish high school. I'm the first person in the family to finish year 10. For, for my mum and dad growing up in the 60s in Western Sydney, they didn't even dream of going to university. That sort of opportunity didn't really exist for working class kids in the western suburbs back then, but it does now. And and that's because of the sort of big reforms of people like Gough Whitlam and Bob Hawke. Across the road from my office in Bankstown, there's a big tower being built now. It's the the new campus of Western Sydney University. Big changes happening, uh, but this is, you know, this is a really important portfolio. It's, um, you know, we come to this building wanting to change people's lives for the better. That's what education does. So when you talk about 
And, and, and looking back at your comments, and, and certainly when we've been having discussions for, for well over a decade now, you've, you've focused on this as a game changer, is the way you put it. Why, why do you see it like that? And do you think it's still got that sort of transformative potential? Oh, big time. Uh, whether it's early childhood education, and we talked a lot about that in the election campaign and the potential that it has to help supercharge the economy by, by getting more people back into the economy who are at home at the moment, stuck at home, looking after the kids because it's more expensive to, to, to go to work than to not go to work because of the cost of childcare, or whether it's what we do in our primary schools and our high schools. You know, our, our schools are effectively the engine room of the new economy. You know, what we do in our primary schools and our high schools, if we get it right, really sets the Australian economy up for the next decade and the decade beyond, making sure that our kids have the skills they need for the jobs of the future. And, and obviously, you're day one, you've just been sworn in, but do you bring any sense of, uh, I, I guess, a reform in mind, a, a value judgment, a, a set of beliefs that will inform you in this role, where you yeah. think there needs to be change, can be improvement? Well, three things. You know, first, it's the big reforms in childcare, making childcare cheaper, not just because it's good for kids and good for, good for mums and dads, but because it's good for the economy. So that's priority number one, getting the legislation that underpins that through the parliament so that we can implement that. The second is, how do we stop the slide? How do we turn around that slide that we've seen in, in student results at primary schools and high schools, we're sliding down that, that sort of global benchmark, um, you know, falling behind the US, the UK, China, Korea. I want to work with state education ministers and teachers, um, all of the professionals in this area, to see what we can do to turn that around. And part of that is getting more high achievers at high school to go to university and become teachers. And then the work that we do with our universities. You know, the, they, they got hammered by, by COVID. They didn't get JobKeeper, but they also lost a lot of international students. They represent one of the biggest export markets that we've got, but they're also the place where we, where we, we build those skills that I talked about a moment ago. Making sure that we're setting ourselves up for the future means that our universities are skilling up Aussies for those jobs. So that's, a, that's really important as well. And when you, you look at your campaign, um, and we, we had a little visitor before, we'll jump over your shoulder actually. <laughs> little Jack. There's Jack there, who's uh, here to provide a bit of support running off now, but the little man. Uh, when you look at the campaign you had, and your family featured through it as well, obviously, but you had a very successful one, didn't you? You would be happy, obviously, with it, with the result, but now you've been promoted beyond, I think, your expectations, haven't you? Well, mate, I, I pinch myself that I'm in this building at all. You know, there's only a bit over a 1,000 people that have ever been elected as members of this place. You know, I talked about my mum and dad. You know, my, my mum didn't, didn't really go to high school. Uh, you know, she, she, was in, she was in bed crook for two years after she left primary school. The idea that, you know, a kid from Cabramatta could rise one day to become the education minister still blows my mind. Um, and it's personal for me. Uh, not just because I know in my own story what the power of education is, not just because I see it in my mother and father-in-law who are refugees from Vietnam and their kids, my wife, my brother-in-law are university graduates, but what it means for that little guy running around behind the interview. You know, I've got a little, little boy at kindergarten. Uh, I've got another little one who's about to go to childcare. I want to so be our... minister for childcare 
You're living it. I'm, I'm living it. I'm seeing it. Um, but that, you know, that's just one example. I know that there are hundreds of thousands. There's a lot of weight Australians. on your shoulders too, because we all know how expensive. Certainly, those that have experienced the last few years, yep. there's a lot of responsibility here for you to try and fix that system. When when Jack went from childcare last year to kindergarten this year, it was like I got a pay rise. You know, childcare is super expensive. There's a reason why parents don't send their children to childcare or don't send them for that extra day because it is so expensive. And if you can make a change there that's going to help, in particular women, who are often working part-time two or three days to work three, four or five days, then you're getting thousands, tens of thousands of skilled Australians ready to go. Now, you, you talk to employers all the time, Chamber of Commerce. Um, they will tell you that there's a shortage of skilled workers in Australia. And what do we do to train them up? Well, the education system is, is, is all, that's what that's all about. But there are a lot of Australians that are skilled right now, ready to go, but they're not working as many days as they'd like to because childcare is so expensive. Well, you've got your first ministerial meeting now, and uh, congratulations once again. We might get Jack to come and say good day. He's been running, <laughs> running around. Hey, Jack. Hey, Jack, come here. No, you're going to get shy now? Let me give you a cuddle. <laughs> your dad had a big day today. Hey, was it exciting? Uh-huh. You got to meet Albo? Uh-huh. Did you love it? Uh-huh. Did your little brother love it too? Uh-huh. <laughs> good boy. And you're supporting the right team with that tie too, the Blues. Love it. <laughs> The Blues, the footy team. Oh. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. All the best, mate. Thanks, mate. Well, that was Jason Clare uh, talking to Sky News, and uh, we thought that because his old school was Cabramatta Public School, that would be our great state school of the week. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. This week's great state school of the week is Cabramatta Public School. Cabramatta Public School is a government primary school located in the bustling suburb of southwestern Sydney. The large suburb of Cabramatta is part of the local government area of Fairfield City Council. Our school, their school, has a strong focus on academic achievement in a community that highly values learning and has high expectations for the academic and social success of its children. There is a positive and mutually respectful relationship between students, staff and families. In 2020, 661 students attended the school, including 98% of students from a non-English speaking background, representing over 40 cultural groups. The majority of students were born in Australia and are of Southeast Asian background. They had 25 mainstream classes and three support classes. Cabramatta Public School has a school as a community centre working in close partnership with the community. As a school community, they are proud of their cultural diversity, which is reflected in all aspects of school organisation, planning and programming. 
A unique feature of the school organization is the Community Languages Program, which provides tuition for Vietnamese, Khmer and Chinese speaking students to maintain their first language and access the general curriculum. The staff at Cabramatta Public School is a strong and dedicated team of both experienced and early career teachers, school learning support officers and administrative officers who work collaboratively towards a shared vision of providing high quality teaching and learning programs to improve outcomes for all students. From 2017 to 2020, they have two instructional leaders appointed as part of the Early Education for Success initiative. And these specialist practitioners will continue to provide professional learning for the staff in areas of literacy and numeracy to personalize learning for students. As we mentioned before, this is the primary school of Jason Clare, the new federal education minister. And as we mentioned, he did visit the school on the 1st of June. As the Sydney Morning Herald reports, he said that he was very fortunate to have amazing and passionate teachers like Mrs. Fry, a teacher at the school. He said quality teachers can have a major impact on a young child's education and had an emotional reunion with Fry. He said, you won't hear a bad word about teachers from me. Claire said being made education minister was a dream come true. On Friday, he made an emotional return to his old primary school, Cabramatta Public in Sydney's West, visiting his former teacher, Kathy Fry. What this shows is that kids from working class suburbs like Cabramatta are as good as kids from anywhere else in the world. If you give them a chance, if you give them an opportunity, if you give them great teachers like Kathy Fry, then our education system will help to give them all of the opportunities in the world. It's a lovely thing for Jason Clare to say. I'll now throw some facts and figures from the ACARA website at you. The school has 580 pupils, 292 boys and 288 girls. The ICSIA value of the school is 948, well below the average of 1,000. This is a majority an immigrant community and 3% of the students have parents from the upper 25% quartile, 12% in the second, second highest quartile, 29% uh, from the second lowest quartile, and 56% from the lowest quartile. 94% of the pupils speak a language other than English at home and 1% are of Indigenous parentage. The school has a lot of disadvantaged students and dedicated principals and teachers. It costs the taxpayer $16,000 to educate a student at this school and the school receives only $2.3 million from the federal government and $8.6 from the state government. $100,000 from fees and $63,000 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have been only $687,000. All this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results of these disadvantaged students are more than just fine. 
They are well above average in almost every area. And the improvement of the students over time is greater than that of other schools. Congratulations to the dedicated staff at this school in Cabramatta. Yes, the, the actual NAPLAN uh, figures are quite extraordinary. And if you look at the pictures in the paper, you'll see that there's a large number of Vietnamese and other immigrant families at this school. So the, there is a language question and um, they go to a great deal of trouble, you can see from their website, to communicate with their parents and teachers. It looks like a pretty um, extraordinary school, really. But um, that's it for today. But uh, we would like to go out reminding you to look in your bank balance to help both the Dogs Program and 3CR for next week because we'll be coming onto your sound waves asking for money. If you'd like to find out more about the dogs, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info or if you'd like to find out more about how to donate to 3CR and pledge to the dogs program, you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and all the information will be there. But for now, thank you to Oliver and Kim and Sol and Dale and Jeff. From all of us, it is bye for now. If you'd like to find out more about uh, the dogs, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info or if you'd like to find out more about how to donate to 3, 3CR and pledge to the dogs program, you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and all the information will be there.
Sir. Uh-huh. 